Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, what can we expect when the new cabinet is announced on October 25th? There could be a lot of new faces. I think it explains perhaps why cabinet is taking a lot longer to craft than it usually does. Lots of people want to have a promotion, you know, they've been sitting on the benches for six years. Canada is expected to have a vaccine passport ready within weeks. We are working with provinces across the country on proofs of vaccination, uh, and we are working to standardize them so that they are available uh, to people to travel internationally in a uh, unified format that will allow for that. And there are more calls for the government to scrap its COVID-19 testing requirement to re-enter Canada. Our government has been, throughout the pandemic, thoughtful about working with our public health authorities working with scientists, working with doctors, and our measures have been flexible and they have adapted to changing circumstances. And that, of course, will continue to be the situation. It's Friday, October the 15th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Toronto Star national columnist Althea Raj. Good morning, Althea. Good morning, Mark. We are going to hear who is in the new federal cabinet on October 25th. So what do you expect to hear? What are you hearing about what the announcements might be? Well, I had heard it was October 25th, but CBC says it might be October 26th. So I guess we'll find out later today what the official date is. And we're also expected to hear um, when Parliament is going to return, which to me is even more interesting than, sorry, I'm obviously not being appointed to cabinet, so I guess I care more when my job right. really starts, <laughs> which is um, when Parliament returns, and there's lots of speculation that it could be even after the the usual holiday around November 11th, Remembrance Day. So, I mean, that means that we have a very, very short uh, fall session may not even be time to set up the committees. I know that conservatives are itching to get back to work when it comes to committees, and that would be a pretty quick turnaround for uh, the finance minister, Minister Freeland, to issue her fall economic update. So that would make a very packed few weeks in November. But I'm sorry, back to your question. What shall we expect? Was that, was that yeah. your question, Mark? <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, big changes is, I think, what I'm hearing with a lot of other uh, journalists around Ottawa are hearing. Now, there was a big um, a big gap uh, in the Liberals' cabinet following the election, of course, because we had Catherine McKenna in Ottawa not running again. And then we had the defeat of three female cabinet ministers, the Prime Minister, was asked and reiterated during his first first press conference after the election that he uh, intends to maintain gender parity. That means that you're going to have, well, some people have speculated that it will be a larger cabinet um, to make room for uh, new voices. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but there definitely will be new voices. Um, All expectations that the defense minister, Harjit Sajjan, will not stay in his position. I've heard Anita Anand's name. This is a procurement minister, the woman who uh, the liberals took on the road to sell their, uh, their success with vaccine procurement. Um, others have heard the name of Carla Qualtrough, the employment minister, the minister for um, Delta in British Columbia. Um, I've heard that Stephen Guibault may be going to the environment. Um, you know, he, of course, is a very well-known environmentalist in Quebec. Um, that would mean replacing Jonathan Wilkinson. 
I don't know if that's going to happen or not. <laughs> there yeah. are also a lot of interesting um, new faces that could make their way to cabinet. Pascal St. Holmes, who won uh, in Promsusqua, uh, was just confirmed because of a judicial recount uh, this week. George Chahal, uh, who's a well-known city councillor in Calgary, um, although, you know, he had that um, a complaint against him for taking his uh, competitor's mailings off the doorstep right. of one resident. Yeah. So I don't know if that's going to... Uh, his appointment, but then the Liberals have Randy Boissonneau, who was um, part of their team in 2015 in Edmonton Centre. And then there's like a string of well-known people with uh, provincial cabinet experience, like I think in Ottawa Centre, in my writing here, Yasser Nasby, who was the Attorney General of Ontario, Marie-France Lalonde, uh, who represents the Orleans riding, which is like just kind of two ridings away from Parliament Hill, um, is uh, has cabinet experience as well in Ontario, and I don't know if we can like be reading between the tea leaves, Mark. But the Prime Minister did do uh, an event in her riding around Thanksgiving, so mm. um, there could be a lot of new faces. I think it explains perhaps why cabinet is taking a lot longer to craft than it usually does. Yeah, um, lots of people want to have a promotion. You know, they've been sitting on the benches for six years. Uh, they're itching to be promoted to cabinet. Um, and then I've heard that there will be some difficult decisions and discussions with some of the veterans. So we'll see that right. they will be people kind of booted from um, from the big kids' table. Yeah. Uh, now, while we're in, talking about two weeks. Yeah, while we're talking about uh, you know the makeup of the cabinet and the, and the resumption of parliament, you have a story this morning about how we're about to find out uh, how parliament will change going forward, how the number of seats will be allocated uh, to each province and, and how the total number might change. Um, what do you give, give us the update on that? <laughs> okay, so later today, Elections Canada is going to release the number of new seats that will be added to the House of Commons. Um, last time we did this was 10 years ago, so it gets done every 10 years, uh, in line with the census. Uh, 30 seats were added to the House of Commons. Now, I haven't heard people suggest that it's going to be that high a number. You know, before that, we went from 301 to 308, only seven seats. So um, looking at the population changes, though, you can see that, you know, there are certainly some provinces that have grown on par with what, uh, you know, the, the previous 10-year period. So um, it will be interesting to see what happens. Now, I have a very I say geeky interest. This is very, this is pretty geeky, but... A lot of MPs, especially in the suburban, ex-urban, now these areas that we call that are kind of like outside of the suburbs where the suburbs are growing, that used to be rural areas, are worried about what this means. Typically, the concern comes from conservative MPs who have been um, holding relatively safe rural ridings, who are seeing the encroachment of city um, city-minded people uh, come to their area. And, and those polls tend to vote liberal. Um, especially in those liberal, uh, liberal conservative swing ridings, and they're they want to make sure that they are implicated in the process, so they don't wake up uh, after the the redistricting, the redrawing of the borders happens, and realize that they are now sitting in a riding that is far more competitive. Um, so if they can kind of try to convince the the three member panel, so every province gets uh, a commission. 
and it has three members, one appointed, the chair appointed by the province's chief justice, and two members appointed by the Speaker of the House of Commons. And they're supposed to weigh, um, you know, what communities have uh, common interests and weigh that against the geographic size of the riding. Right. So it will be pretty interesting to see where people end up. It has in the past led to very different decisions in different provinces. Um, Sometimes there is enormous opposition to the changes and the commissions decide to go back to what the original borders are, if they can, or similar borders. They try to avoid making huge sweeping changes. But basically the process kicks off today. We should have these commissions in place by November 1st. And then any changes to the electoral map will happen um, after April 2024. That's how long it takes to get all this stuff done. So these writings may not even be in place for the next election. But Mm. it's it's like a new battle over where the lines are drawn. This is not quite as sexy or controversial as the gerrymandering in the United States. Um, But it is something that is equally important to our politicians. And they are certainly going to be involved. Uh, and where they want those lines to be. And, and yeah. for some, you know, um, I'd say like city councillors or township residents, it's also important to them. So uh, lots of people tend to, to get involved in these discussions. All right, let's talk about uh, what's happening on the COVID front and uh, a couple of mm-hmm. interesting developments. Um, it, it looks like the federal government might turn to uh, the, the the people who... Um, uh, who screen passengers at the airport um, uh, rather than the airlines to verify uh, people's vaccination status. Uh, we're also expecting a vaccine passport to be ready within a few weeks. The, the prime minister spoke about that over the last couple of days. And then there are questions about whether the government will uh, suspend and scrap the COVID testing requirement to re-enter mm-hmm. Canada. So lots of different things there affecting travelers, but um, we'll we'll find out more about all of this stuff in the in the days and weeks ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure if we're supposed to technically still be staying home. I saw um, the health minister Patty Hayu telling people at Thanksgiving not to travel. Mm. But <laughs> to your point. Um, there are all these measures that are still kind of up in the air, frankly. No decision seems to be made. So we don't have a date on when the international um, passport application things from the federal government, the one they've been working on for months now, when that's going to come into effect. We don't even know when the border rules with the U.S. are going to kick into effect. Um, yesterday, Christopher Freeland, who was in Washington, um, meeting with her counterparts over there and doing some some lobbying against by American provisions and, and other things, um, basically said, had nothing to say about the PCR test requirements. So the interesting thing is that the U.S., in opening its borders to Canadian travelers and travelers from Mexico, um, will not be requiring us to get to prove uh, that we do not have COVID when we enter Uh, U.S. territory. So we just need to show that we are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, but we don't need to show that we are, we have a negative test. But you do need to show that through a PCR test, which is quite expensive, $200, $250, that you don't have COVID, even if you're fully vaccinated, when you return to Canada. So there's um, some pressure from travelers from the business community um, on both sides of the border, frankly, uh, to waive that requirement. And Minister Freeland had, well, basically nothing to say about that. The other thing you mentioned that was that is quite interesting. Um, the airlines have been raising concerns about the complicated nature of test of checking vaccine requirements because everybody has every province has a different system, 
And so the government is basically floating the idea to the airlines. Okay, what if we gave the mandate to the Kane Air Transport Security Authority, CASA? These are the people that um, screen your carry-on luggage. Uh, what if uh, initially, you know, when you show your boarding pass, that they would then uh, check your your vaccine identification? Now, there seems to be some interest uh, with the airlines of giving that responsibility basically back to the government because CASA is a crown uh, a crown corporation. Um, however, some airlines were already kind of working under the premise that they themselves had to do this. So they were trying to develop a system that would, you know, um, kind of state your proof of vaccination on your boarding pass, that so this would be done at the front end. Right. So I, I, I would say, Mark, still lots of questions about where that's going. And yeah. the government is kind of running out of time because, they, you know, this is supposed to be done really shortly. So um, hopefully we will have answers in the coming days and um, on clarity. And I would assume the airlines would like to have that sooner rather than later as well. So they yeah. can start pushing forward with their plans or, or halting. All right. We'll see what happens. Uh, Lots to come in the days and weeks ahead. Althea, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. You too, Mark. That's Toronto Star National Columnist Althea Raj. While we still have a ways to go, we are seeing some encouraging trends, which means that the restrictions exemption program, together with other vaccine incentives and public health measures, have had a real and positive impact. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Gary Mason argues the prairies are showing Canada what a COVID-19 disaster looks like. Mason writes, Saskatchewan and Alberta are responsible for the highest per capita death rates from COVID-19 in the country. And there's one major reason why. In their zeal to pander to noisy anti-lockdown folks, the premiers ignored warnings about opening things up and went all in. Saskatchewan and Alberta also have the lowest rates of full vaccination of any province. Jason Kenney was wrong this summer when he said the prairies were showing Canada how it's done. Too many folks there have shown just the opposite. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues Canada's military needs more than symbolic change at the top. The Star writes... Six years and two federal elections later, a re-elected Trudeau government is still grappling with a crisis of leadership in the armed forces, and the credibility of Canada's military has taken an enormous hit. The first step toward repairing the situation must come when the Prime Minister announces his new cabinet. It will be both astonishing and unacceptable if Harjit Sajjan remains in that position. Whoever succeeds him will have to make real, substantive change and quickly. In the National Post, Catherine Marshall argues the military can't police itself when it comes to sexual misconduct. Marshall writes, It's time to end the farce that is the Canadian Armed Forces self-regulation. It isn't working, and the time has long since come to implement external processes for addressing sexual misconduct in the military. With self-regulation, it is challenging to hold senior leaders accountable, and problems often get swept under the rug. It is only through rigorous external reporting and investigation that real change can be made and wrongdoers can properly be held to account. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will be in private meetings. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, October the 15th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns 
Monday morning. Have a great weekend.